Solidarity, a podcast where we draw connections between power, place, and health, and discuss how our lives, our fates, are all interconnected. Here are your hosts, Erica Burrow Girardi and Beth Silver. Hi there, and welcome to episode four of In Solidarity. I'm your host, Beth Silver, here with my co-host, Erica Burroughs Girardi. Hi, Erica. How are you? Hey, Beth. I'm doing great. I'm excited for our conversation about reparations today. Me too. You know, taking stock of where we're at in this miniseries on the racial wealth gap, episode four of six, we've introduced the problem, how wealth inequality is a pervasive and enduring problem, even greater possibly than income inequality. We've talked about the data behind it. We got into the history of the racial wealth divide. Now, finally, we can talk about hope, the solutions. In this episode, we'll look into reparations as a possible solution to bridging the wealth divide. We're joined by Dr. Andre Perry. He's a senior fellow with the Brookings Institution and a scholar in residence at American University. He's authored the book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And Dr. Perry also co-authored a Brookings policy brief that we'll be discussing today. It's called Why We Need Reparations for Black Americans. Here's a stat that gets repeated often but still shocks the system. White people with less than a high school degree have more wealth than black college graduates in this country. It dispels the myth that black families could accumulate wealth if they just pulled themselves up by the bootstraps or knew how to save better or went to college. It is shocking, Beth. So worth repeating that when we're talking about wealth inequality, we need to remember that the average white family has 10 times the wealth of the average black family. And as Dr. Perry points out, white college graduates have more than seven times the wealth of black college graduates. What does that mean for the opportunity for all of us to thrive? Dr. Perry and other scholars believe that through reparations, cash payments to descendants of formerly enslaved people, we could close the racial wealth gap. We could also provide wealth-building opportunities, according to Dr. Perry, to address racial disparities in education, housing, and business ownership. One of the interesting uh, arguments that Dr. Perry makes, along with his co-author, Dr. Rashawn Ray, is that we've already had reparations in this country, just not for Black people. We've talked about the infamous 40 acres and a mule that were promised to formerly enslaved people at the end of the Civil War. Of course, that never came to pass for most. And how the Homestead Act ended up giving land to white Americans instead. In recent years, some of the country's foremost thought leaders have weighed in. People including Dr. Perry, journalist and author Ta-Nehisi Coates, journalist and professor Nicole Hannah-Jones, and so many others who have investigated the idea of reparations. And there is some movement, albeit a small amount, in this direction. In fact, Erica, as you know, last year Evanston, Illinois, became the first U.S. city to provide reparations to some of its Black residents. It's a small and focused project for housing discrimination, but, you know, a start. On the other hand, a poll last year showed that nearly two out of three Americans were against reparations. Clearly a lot to discuss with Dr. Perry, so let's get into it. Please help us welcome Dr. Andre Perry. Hello, Erica and Beth. Hello, how are you guys? We're doing great. I want to start with this question. So on in solidarity, the theme that runs through our shows is the idea of social solidarity. What does social solidarity mean to you and how does it influence the work you do? 
Well, social solidarity for me means that we see our commonness, our humanness, our our shared fates, that we don't live in this, in the world where we believe that the impact of our actions does not um, uh, have consequence on the whole. And, And so for me to be in solidarity is to recognize our shared fates. And um, but that extends economically, politically, socially, uh, and in so many different aspects. And so, um, for me, it is really understanding our our shared fate. For me, the most basic question: What are reparations? Who would qualify? What would it cost? What are what are sort of the basics around reparations? Reparations is, I mean, the root word. You can hear the term repair through some, and it typically connotes some type of um, financial settlement because of an injury based upon a, a claim of a um, disenfranchised class. And in this context, reparations, certainly um, there's a claim for reparations um, in regards to slavery, Jim Crow racism, uh, various forms of discrimination, including housing, criminal justice. Um, but reparations, simply put, is some type of repair um, based upon an injury um, inflicted wrongly by, um, particularly by a government or some type of major actor. What? Uh, who would qualify for that then? Well, I'll, I'll I'll put it very clear in in the context of Black Americans um, and for slavery in particular it would be the American descendants of the enslaved mm-hmm. now. Um, but there are other claims. So if you're talking about slavery, you need to be specific about slavery. If you're talking about housing discrimination, you have to need to be specific about that. And so there are people um, who were not the descendants of the enslaved, but were impacted by redlining, by segregation. And so there's a claim to be made for those people as well. Um, And then you always have to be uh, very clear that um, there are different claims by country. And so um, if you're talking about um, Caribbeans, um, they can lay claim to um, um, the UK or, or the Brits um, for their actions. And um, the American government has inflicted harm on American citizens. So you also need to be very specific in that regard. And, 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 and let's also understand there is an intergenerational component to this, that my, my ancestors um, were denied opportunities um, for wealth, um, longevity, health, um, opportunity, and that has a direct bearing on my um, wealth, health, and all these different things. And so, um, the the descendants of um, the injured certainly should be awarded some reparations. You don't have, you, I mean, obviously, um, um, no one is living um, who were officially enslaved, um, but their children and their children certainly. Um, should be awarded some reparations. And likewise, um, when you're for talking about redlining, people are still alive. I mean, uh, uh, I mean there, there are injuries that have been caused um, in very recent times. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And so um, there's claims to, um, to be paid out um, for those atrocities as well. Right. And, and this is where it gets tricky. And this is where there's a lot of debate. Should reparations come from the federal government? Should it come from states? Should it come from local municipalities? And the answer is yes, all of them. <laughs> uh, that that you you can lay a claim at any one of those levels because um, it happened. I mean, and in fact, I you know I always have to explain to people that that many of these policies um, um, were started locally. Um, in fact, so when you're talking about redlining, um, a lot of people point to uh, Baltimore, 1910, and, and, and those practices were picked up in New Orleans and Atlanta and, and, and lots of other places. And it found it's moved its way up to the federal government. And so and then the federal government effectively codified and, and, and enriched those policies, empowered those policies. And but so we, we should not lose sight that local governments were many of the architects of this inequality, yeah. and and are and and hold some responsibility in in repairing that damage. So for me, it you know that's a big question because um, um, who's owed um, reparations and ultimately will get to questions about who should pay mm-hmm. and, and people, you know, you hear these silly, and I do mean silly remarks when people say, I didn't own any slaves. <laughs> Why should I pay reparations? Well, we're not asking individuals to pay in reparations. We're asking the federal government, state governments, institutions to pay. Um, and, and that is certainly not a foreign concept. I mean, and you know, 9/11 victims receive uh, some form of reparations. I mean, and I mean, in other groups, uh, uh, Native Americans, while certainly they were woefully inadequate, woefully inadequate, um, and almost an insult to mm-hmm. the injury. I mean, um, but there was some reparations. And when you talk about Japanese interned, again. Um, woefully inadequate, but there was redress for um, Japanese in turn. And then internationally, you obviously have um, Jewish um, um, citizens who were paid reparations um, from Germany. Um, so this is not really a, a foreign concept. The only time it becomes controversial is when it comes to Black people. You know, um, that's the only question. We Americans believe in reparations. They just don't believe in reparations for Black people. The public is now becoming warmer and warmer to the idea. And, and we can talk about the evidence of that, but um, certainly reparations even 20 years ago, in terms of polling, only about 12% of people were uh, 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 for it. Now it's up to 30%. Um, it, when I looked at some of those recent um, um, numbers. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's been too long um, um, for us to receive reparation, but it's certainly due. Dr. Perry, I have so many questions uh, within everything you just said, and, and, um, and you anticipated a lot of them, so I appreciate that. One of them is, why not Black Americans? As you said, Indigenous people, Jewish Americans, uh, Japanese Americans, but not 
Black Americans. Why not? Well, I mean, hatred is real. I mean, why Black Americans have not um, received reparations? Because um, um, many of our white brothers and sisters don't believe we're American. Um, like I said, um, and, and there is such a disdain for um, um, doing Black people right that it comes out in whether or not we receive reparations or not. You know, there, you know, again, several other groups have received reparations, you know, but anti-black racism is is was rooted in white supremacy. Yeah. And this idea that black people don't deserve anything from the government because we we're not considered members of the United States. And, you know, and I started my policy work looking at undocumented immigrant educational rights. And my dissertation was on um, um, membership <laughs> because who we deem a member um, ultimately translate into what kind of public goods and services they receive. And um, in the case of, you know, undocumented immigrants, we know that there are immigrants who have, are doing everything required of membership. They're going to school, they are working, they are socializing, going to church, all these different things, but they're not getting educational, certain educational benefits. Well, but that, you know, the case of undocumented immigrants has a precedent. Um, remember, women and Blacks um, um, did everything required of membership, but did not get the full rights and, and privileges. We were second-class citizens, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so, but um, in many regards, we're still second-class citizens until we receive reparations because it is owed. I mean, there is an unpaid invoice. Um, going back to um, when General Sherman um, issued um, his, his order um, to provide, you know, 40 acres and a mule, people will, you know, cite that as the, the first um, 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 issuance of, of reparations, but that um, was squashed. Mm -hmm. And um, and we haven't seen any type of real movement since until really now. Mm -hmm. I mean, reparations is now coming off the lips of of mainstream Americans for the first time. We're, we're doing podcasts, we're doing <laughs> hearings, we're, you know, uh, it's amazing. And so um, we're still nowhere near um, where we want to be, but certainly reparation movements are happening at a local level, the same way exclusionary practices were happening at a local level and they worked their way to Washington. Yeah. What about Dr. Perriette? a race-neutral solution? Is that even, should that be under consideration? You know, no, it should. I mean, I think certainly um, we can figure out ways to help all citizens who are low wealth. I, you know, because, you know, to a certain extent, we need a no, new social safety net. Um, people who were, are, were not able to acquire wealth, um, poor whites, um, Latinos, uh, and others 
um, other classes who've been discriminated against, gays, others, um, certainly should benefit from public policy. And there are certain claims to that. But when you're talking about anti-Black racism, it you you almost have to have a rate. A, a, a specific solution for black people. You know, it is hard to not recognize race when you're talking about redlining, when you're talking about slavery. Right. I mean, you know, this is done to black people and we still see evidence of the impact um, by race. You know, a lot of people look to my work on housing devaluation mm-hmm. where we found that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23%, about 48,000 per home. Cumulatively, there's about a, a loss of about 156 billion in lost equity. And you know, and we found that difference after controlling for education, crime, walkability. Um, but what we also are finding is that um, th- there is a big difference between um, homes, um, the, the devaluation of homes in um, uh, predominantly Latino communities. It's, it's more class-based than race-based. That the more poor people you have, the, the, the lower the values, so to mm-hmm. speak. So it's not as race-specific, but when, when it comes to Black concentration, it really lowers the value because of Blackness, not necessarily because you're your class. Right. And, and so... Um, we almost have to have um, a race conscious policy. And, you know, let's be real. A lot of our policies are race conscious anyway. We just, but when, when white people are the default race, you don't have to call it as such. (laughs) That's right. So for me, I think, um, yeah, we, we have to have some, uh, a race conscious approach, but I'm also, but there's an and here. I also think that people who are low wealth need relief too. Um, and so, um, because it is almost impossible to get a share of the quote unquote American dream if you don't have wealth um, um, in your coffers. And, and that leads me to my next question, Dr. Perry, because I want to talk about this idea that that seems to elude some that in order to close the racial wealth gap, we can't lift all boats. In other words, programs that improve opportunities for wealth accumulation for the entire class don't actually address the wealth gap. How does that sound to you? How does that resonate with you? Well, there's some truth if you don't you if you don't address r- racial inequality, you'll essentially raise all boats from whatever standing they are. And, and, and so my issue is you must address the racial inequality mm-hmm. at the same time, providing opportunities for people to build wealth. And, and what that looks like is in housing markets, for instance, let's be clear. Um, we do need to give uh, down payment assistance, low interest loans, and the like to African-Americans who've been discriminated against, period. I mean, that 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 we're owed these things that, and that's going to the heart of reparation. We did not receive them. So to 
to address it, you have got to provide these subsidies that you already provided to white people. There's no way to get around. Like, you know, if you just said, hey, we're going to give it to everybody, you know, that doesn't make any sense. That math doesn't hold up. Um, and so, um, one, it's a, about giving to the people who are owed, period. And then, but I, again, I say this, and I really do mean it, that in this country, it is becoming more and more the case that the extremely wealthy, are tilting the scales to benefit themselves mm -hmm. to the detriment of everyone. And so you also have that problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not going away either. So for me, we do have to have, um, you know, a wealth tax, if you will, um, that will provide the revenue for many of the programs and initiatives um, that we need. And, and I think that wealth tax, while it, it won't be necessarily um, um, race conscious, it will disproportionately um, um, impact white wealthy individuals um, because they benefited from uneven policy. And, and, and so, but we still need to address the inequality that, that is still with us today. Dr. Perry, you write that reparations are, quote, for naught without enforcement of anti-discrimination policies that remove barriers to economic mobility and wealth building. And you say that the architecture of the economy must change. How do you suggest that we do this? And are you saying that reparations Essentially, they're not going to fix everything. Yeah, I mean, if if we maintain the systems that we have, um, reparations won't have the impact that we want. I, I mean, and it, it goes to every system. I, I I talk a lot about canceling student debt, and the issue there is black people are forced to take out loans more because of our wealth position, which was directly related to discriminatory policy. Um, now, in, in, in that regard, yes, I want debt cancellation. However, the greater solution is to have some form of free college for everyone. I mean, that's the solution, because if we're saying that college is as basic as a K-12 education, then we need to have a public option just like in a, a, a K-12 environment. And, and that's not, ju not just for commu community college, also for four-year as well. And so, yes, um, I think you deal with the reparations of education, but you also need to address these systems that were built on exclusivity and change those as well. Because if, you know, just using that case, if we cancel the debt, and go back to the former system, people just acquire more debt again. Right. And so, but the same is true in, in, in banking, in economic development policy, in housing, in healthcare, that um, these systems um, were built on exclusivity, not on inclusivity. I mean, I could go on for days about connecting our healthcare to our um, employment status, 
um, as if healthcare shouldn't be a fundamental, basic right, human right, as right. if housing shouldn't be some kind of fundamental human right. You know, like I mean, we make some of these things into a luxury. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, these are not luxury. We need an education. We need people to have housing. We need people to have health care. You've already hinted at this, but I do want to ask this question directly. If if we could begin to close the racial wealth gap through reparations, what do you think the health implications would be? Oh, I mean, we would see our, our um, better health, health outcomes almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Because, um, again, I say reparations certainly cut the check but also remove these systems that rob people of opportunity and, and, and growth. And so a check with um, national healthcare, um, a single payer system will go a long way. You know, people wouldn't have to use their discretionary um, income to fix a broken leg. They can use that money to, to put towards their kids' development. Um, you know, and so a lot of low income and low wealth people, when they do get a little extra, they had to put it towards basic things that they shouldn't have to put it towards, you know, um, you know, and, and, you know, we should talk about parental leave. We should be talking about healthcare. We should be talking about, um, a free college because these things, are basic. And yet we're asking people to put our discretionary income towards these very basic goods and services that should be afforded um, because of our the taxes we pay. And, um, and then even the idea of taxation is getting, I mean, people really have this, this idea that America can is growing because of individualism, rugged individual. No, uh, America grows because the government invests in people. Um, our, our, our collective dollars are supposed to go towards collective goods. And, and there's a lot of us that are just losing sight of the collective good. Um, one, one final question. Um, and, and, uh, to, to kind of round this out, you know, you talked about the um, idea of the we do it for moral reasons. And then there's the other idea that we do it because it benefits us economically. Um, it seems almost offensive to me that we can't just do it because it's morally right. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. You know, I and I make this mistake all the time because I work at the Brookings Institution and we're always talking about economic growth. And that should be the reason why we do something. No, uh, I, I'm, I always have to be reminded my, you know, my good friend, Derek Hamilton, economist mm. from the new school, yeah. he's always correcting me. We, we get to serve on panels and I'm putting up all these numbers, blah, blah. And he always looks back and, you know, we have to do this because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. That is yeah. the moral yeah. thing to do. Um, and, and I always have to be reminded, we all do, that this is about being our highest selves, being our moral self. And that includes being um, sound morally. Um, and, and so if 
if we achieve to be the best people we can be, um, the best humans we can be, the highest order of our intelligence is around our moral reasoning, our social priorities. And we're not living up to those standards. And so um, I think we need to get back to this um, deeper um, meaning of public. It's a good. And um, we need to get back to that. But the politicization of housing, schools, the marketplace, this is, you know, the tools of used by people to abdicate their responsibility to serve the public. Um, and for me, um, we have got to change that and, and demand that our leaders and our neighbors and our children understand that public is a good thing mm-hmm. and, and we need to um, uplift that. So um, let's continue. Um, um, this 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 trajectory towards freedom, and let's do it boldly. Let's do it with, you know, with um, conviction, with a, a good moral compass, and we'll, we'll get there. I, I mean, I, you know, people might hear me and say, "Oh, oh he's a pessimistic," but I'm actually very encouraged because I did see a lot of people marching in Black Lives Matter movements. I did see a lot of people taking risks. Um, that they wouldn't necessarily take a few years ago. I do. I do see my brothers and sisters having podcasts um, who unapologetically bring on guests like me. Um, so I, I, I see, and I see you, Erica. I see you, Beth, doing the good work. Let's let's keep pressing. Let's keep pressing. Thank you for that. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for being with us. It was an outstanding conversation. I hope you can join us again. Uh, we'll keep reading you and following you. Um, and we just, we appreciate it. Thank you for your support. And I, I look forward to listening in to, to more episodes. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Dr. Perry. Wow. What, what an illuminating conversation with Dr. Perry. Yes, and he makes a great case for reparations, and it feels like we're really drilling into the details of the racial wealth divide, but also the solutions to closing it. Yeah, you know, it it feels it's disheartening, but it's also at the same time encouraging, Erica. Yeah, I, I know what you mean, and we're going to continue this conversation in our next episode, so more solutions and strategies to come. Next up, we'll be talking with our County Health Rankings and Roadmaps colleague, Michael Stevenson. He leads our evidence and policy analysis team. His team researches and rates the policies and strategies that address the racial wealth gap and the health inequities that result from it. I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Until then, I'm Erica. And I'm Beth. And we're in solidarity, connecting power, place, and health. Now it's your turn to join the conversation. Head over to our podcast page on countyhealthrankings.org and share your thoughts with us. The question for this episode is, will reparations for descendants of formerly enslaved people ever gain enough support in this country? 
In Solidarity is a production of County Health Rankings and Roadmaps from the University of Wisconsin with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Views expressed by guests of In Solidarity are their own. Their appearance on In Solidarity does not imply County Health Rankings and Roadmaps endorsement. To learn more about our guests' work, to discover additional resources on the topics we've discussed, or to find out how healthy your community is, visit us at countyhealthrankings.org.